Hey, I'm Bruce Weinstein, and this is the podcast Cooking with Bruce and Mark. And I'm Mark Scarborough, and together with Bruce, we have written three dozen cookbooks, are currently writing yet another, but our latest published and out on the market is the Instant Air Fryer Bible. Don't forget, there's also the Instant Pot Bible and the Essential Air Fryer Cookbook, the only cookbook that sizes out every recipe for every size of air fryer on the market. That was a task. Wow. A hill to climb. But we're not going to talk about any of those books in this episode of our podcast. Instead, we're going <laughs> to answer the long-anticipated question, how long do pickles last? That's really a, quite a question right there, and I'm sure being asked by millions of people. Uh, we've got a one-minute cooking chip. Bruce has got an interview with Lauren Chitwood. She is the CEO of Spiritless. Oh, we want to talk about that. And we're going to talk about what's making us happy in food this week. How long do pickles last? It's a good question, right? One that Epicurious answered in a rather lengthy piece entitled, mm. How Long Do Pickles Last? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, mean, I think that's actually really important because we I fill our refrigerators with all sorts of condiments. Pickles are condiments, and we fill our fridge with these things, and they stay in there for months, sometimes years, and we still okay, eat them. Okay, there's no pickle that has ever stayed in my refrigerator for years because I don't believe there's ever enough vinegar in the world. But <laughs> I know people do do these kind of things. And we, we, Bruce and I go through pickles and pickled jalapeno rings like you can't believe. But still and nonetheless, I know that there are lots of pickled and fermented ingredients like kimchi right. that stick around a long time in people's refrigerators. They do. And we went to our fridge after I saw this article online, and I found a ton of pickles of all varieties in there. None of them were open this year, so now we know they've been open for at least six, seven, eight weeks. And so the question is, how long are they going to last? And part of that has to do with whether they're shelf-stable pickles or refrigerator pickles. So... We need to talk about what the difference between those well, are. Well, you know, so shelf-stable, just to say, shelf-stable pickles are the pickles that you see on the shelves in the supermarket, not in a refrigerator case, versus the ones you see in a refrigerator case. That's just basically the difference. So, you, for example, most of the time when you buy kimchi, you're going to find it in a refrigerator case. Now, apparently, the kimchi at H Mart, which I love more than I can say, the country radish kimchi, is shelf-stable because it's always out on the shelves. Now, I don't know if that's because they sell it fast enough that it can sit out there. Every other kimchi I've ever seen is in a refrigerator case. So I, I'm not sure on that one, I have to tell you. But nonetheless, I can tell you that the, that the kimchi that I love at H Mart is actually out on a shelf. That's really scary. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not scary because I love it. But I have to say that when I open those country radish kimchis from H Mart, they do bubble. It does instantly well, it's a, bubble. It's a live food. I yeah. mean, it is absolutely a live food. So here's the thing. Every pickle that is shelf-stable has a use-by date on it. And that's very misleading because those use-by dates can be a year or even two down the road. Right. But that use-by date really should be an open-by date. Because once you open it, now you're working on the same philosophy as a fresh pickle, which only lasts about two months most before it starts to go bad. I think that that's right. I think you, if you see that date on there, that's the date at which, as Bruce said, you have to open it. But then two months, you're safe. But there are signs that you're not safe. Yep. So are. some of those signs include mold. <laughs> Don't. 
eat pickles with mold on Oh, them. God. Don't eat anything with mold well, on okay, it. Well, okay, I mean, my mold? cheese. Oh, that's edible I mean, mold. That's no, well, actually, food. hard cheese, but, you know, even semi-firm cheese, like semi-firm mozzarella or cheddar, if it's got mold on it, the old thing was always cut it off. Those mold fibers can, in fact, oh, go they can. far deeper than you think. I thought you were talking like the mold on the outside of brie that's supposed to be right. there. Right. Okay, that's that, different. That is very different. That's very different. Um, if they're soft and mushy, pickles are not supposed to be soft and mushy. So if that's the case, throw them out. Right. And if they have a terribly bad smell, you must throw them out. And I should tell you that Bruce makes kimchi every summer. And there's a recipe on our YouTube channel for Bruce making kimchi. And it's delicious. But this last summer, a lot of things went on in our lives. And we were not able to get through the vat of kimchi he makes every summer. I mean, he literally makes Five-gallon bucket. Yeah, a vat. And we do go through it. I love kimchi. But we do go through it. But this summer, we didn't get through it. And, hmm. It started to smell bad, and we thought, well, you know, kimchi, it's fermented, blah, blah, blah. And then it really started to smell bad, and somehow, being the idiot food writers we are, we still ate it, and we both got really sick on it. So, uh, you know, if it smells bad, by and large, it is bad. It is. The other thing is bulging lids. Yep. Now, it is true. Things like kimchi and sauerkraut, if they have live active cultures, yep. will produce gas, and you may have a little bulge. But basically, especially in shelf-stable pickles, if your lid is bulging, get rid of it, especially in anything that doesn't have any live bacteria going on. And this on. goes for kimchi, too. Um, if it's fizzy... Be careful, and not we're not talking about fizzy when you first open it. But if you open it and it fizzes, okay, fine. It's a live bacterial product. Great. But then if a month later you open it and it's fizzing noticeably, now you're in danger. You have broken the seal on it. So be careful. This is not a good moment. Fizzy pickles, fizzy mustards, oh, all of that ooh. are real. Fizzy chow chow, if you're from the South and know what that is. Fizzy chutneys, no good. You do not want fizz under any circumstances. So that's basically bacterial byproduct. Things are growing in there. And I know you think, how can something grow in mustard given the amount of salt in it or the amount of acid in it? Trust me, things can grow. I have seen mustard molded. Oh, it can. Absolutely. So let's talk about mustard. In fact, can I just say... That uh, which I never say, but this has nothing to do with any fermented or pickled product. But I can tell you because of personal experience of actually hunting for houses once that I have actually seen Peeps mold. <laughs> and I would tell you that, that is pe- sugar mold. <laughs> I would tell you that Peeps cannot mold; they're too chemical to mold. And we looked at a house once when we were moving to New England, in which there were boxes and boxes of moldy, fuzzy Peeps when Mark on the says dining boxes, room table. He's talking. There was at least five hundred. Oh yes, this, this is a, a hoarding house. A complete hoarding house that she was trying to get rid of and i can tell you peeps do mold so right, be careful yeah and <laughs> do be careful so let's talk about mustard ketchup and other condiments that we tend to open and just mm. leave in the fridge mm. for months look mm. we wouldn't do that with a jar of pasta sauce right nope. if i opened a jar of marinara nope. and i used half of it for a recipe i put the other half in the fridge i'm not going to eat that sauce two weeks later. No. I know it's going to be 
not healthy, even if I don't see mold. So why do we do that and with we should, ketchup and mustard? And, and uh, we should also add, because this is, you brought up the, the, the pasta thing, um, discoloration around the rim or discoloration mm. around the outside of the, uh, uh, the ingredients inside, you know, right on the surface, is also a bad sign. It ride and sign. crusty stuff around when you open the lid. Yeah. Or look on the inside of the lid. If mm-hmm. Maybe you don't see mold down in your mustard, but if there's mold on the inside of the lid, mm-hmm. chuck. It. So, okay, it. the USDA actually has a rundown on what they recommend in terms of how long you should keep things in the fridge. And ketchup, which so many of us open and keep in there for months, and other sweet tomato-based condiments like chili sauce, those actually can stay six months without any problem. And we're talking about, it, it did for, for anybody who is crazy enough to make their own ketchup, we're talking about industrial-produced ketchup. Mm-hmm. Homemade ketchup lasts much shorter. It has not got the shelf life that industrial ketchup has. Nope. So be very careful if you can ketchup in the summer. Be very careful after you open it. Give it about a month in the fridge and then get rid of it. Chutney, if you have like mango chutney or rhubarb chutney or something like that, according to the USDA, give it two months. And again, we're not talking about homemade chutneys. Yep. We're talking about processed, jarred chutneys. And pickles, right? And, and I don't mean pickles like dill pickles. I mean pickles as in East Indian pickles, like lime yep. pickles. Yes, those I would put in all in the chutney category. Yep. And as Mark said, mustards, whoever sees the mold, well, it's the interesting thing. The USDA gives them the longest refrigerator shelf life that you can keep most mustards open for a year in your fridge. Yep. And olives... If you open the container from the supermarket or if you buy them in a jar or a can, we're talking about two weeks once it's open. Mm -hmm. Be very careful about all these products because they can cause problems and you don't want any of the problems that they cause. Remember, uh, use by date is really probably the open by date. Mm -hmm. But once you open it, now everything is ticking. Now the clock has started ticking. Now, that said, there are places where one does find a jar of pickles. I'm thinking about cleaning out my parents' house two years ago. (laughs) And one does find a jar of pickles in the pantry that the open by date or used by date is two and three years old. Let me just say I chucked those. (laughs) Good idea, even if it's not bulging. I didn't touch them because they had been in my parents' pantry for so long that I didn't. I know this seems wasteful. And listen, none of us want food waste, but I assure you a little food waste is better than a lot of food poisoning. Before we get to our next segment on the podcast, let me say that we have a newsletter. Would you like to be a part of that newsletter? Mm, There's all kinds of tips and tricks that come out in the newsletter. It's got some heartfelt bits about our lives. It's got knitting patterns. It comes out, I don't know, let's say it comes out every once in a while. But if you'd like to have a part of that newsletter, there's a recent one about grief and cooking. There's a recent one about Bruce's knitting projects. If you'd like to be on that mailing list, you can go to our website, Bruce and mark.com drop down on the landing page the page you get to first you'll see sign up for the newsletter you can there we have to take your name your last name and your first name as well as an email address we promise a hundred percent we will never sell your email nor will we ever give your email to anyone else and the emails go out blind copied so no one else can ever see them so if you'd like to be a part of that go to bruceandmark.com Okay, up next, segment two, our one-minute cooking tip. Here is an easy, quick pasta idea. And Mark and I like to call this colander cooking. 
And this idea we published in our book, The Kitchen Shortcut Bible. So you take a colander and put it in your sink. Mm. Then you put in quick cooking vegetables, like little cauliflower florets, sliced string beans, shredded carrots, thinly cut zucchini. You put these quick cooking vegetables in the colander in the sink. Mm -hmm. Then cook your spaghetti or other pasta as usual, but use a very, very large pot because you want a lot of boiling water. Large is the key. When the pasta's done, drain the pasta over those veggies. That boiling water going over it will blanch them. Mm -hmm. Let the hot pasta sit on them for about a minute, and those veggies will be cooked. It'll be ready to be tossed up with a sauce of your choice, pesto, or even melted butter and cheese. Before we get to the big interview in this podcast, let's say it would be great if you would subscribe, if you would rate it. We are unsponsored, so you, which means we can talk about pickles all we want. So if you could rate it, that would really help us in the analytics and help us keep going. You can find that rating on Spotify, on Google Podcasts, on Apple Podcasts, where it's found. And if you go to the trouble and drop down the page, you can even write a review. And even something as simple as nice podcast does wonders for us. Thank you again for being on this journey with us. Okay, up next, Bruce's interview with Lauren Chitwood. She is the CEO of Spiritless, a maker of alcohol-free bourbon and tequila. Today, I'm lucky enough to be talking with bourbon lover and alcohol-free spirits entrepreneur, Lauren Chitwood. She and her business partners created the brand called Spiritless, and their flagship product is Kentucky 74, which they call a beautifully distilled non-alcoholic spirit for bourbon cocktails. Welcome, Lauren. Thank you, Bruce. I'm so excited to be here. I want to start with the basics. Can you tell me what is bourbon if it's not an alcoholic beverage? I know. What a loaded question, right? We we went to great lengths to try to give the consumer as many touch points to understand what this might be like, while obviously, you know, honoring the the, the treasure that is bourbon. So, you know, I, I live in Louisville, Kentucky, you know, bourbon is in our blood and all around us here in, in these neck of the woods. But, you know, what, what we really wanted as, as moms, as businesswomen was, you know, to be able to go out and and keep up with the boys, even when we couldn't keep up with the boys, if we're being honest, right? And so, you know, I love an incredible old fashioned, I can have one. And, you know, if I make that decision to move to the second, I just can't hang, right? Yep. So what's wonderful about, about Spiritless and certainly about Kentucky 74 is it's an incredible tool in our toolkit. It is reminiscent of that incredible native spirit. We've created this awesome process to be able to hold on to all the tannins and the oils and really, you know, have something that's darn close, not the same, but darn close. You say this is a distilled spirit and people think, well, what comes out of the still is alcohol. So how do you create an alcohol-free product coming out of a still without giving away all your trade secrets? It's a wonderful story. So, you know, what we knew was that the consumer was making purchase decisions about these incredible spirits based upon how, how these products were made, right? At what age, et cetera, right? And, you know, when we looked at the space broadly, what we saw in the competitive set was that it was all water with a bunch of flavoring in it. And we just said, that doesn't feel like a spirit to me. You can't call yourself a spirit. We know better than that, right? And so what actually happened was we built this little baby still in our basement. Um, <laughs> it was 
YouTube University all the way. It was literally a popcorn tin with a commercial sous vide. We connected it to this PVC pipe arm that had a sump pump and a cooler. And we were buying bulk old Forester off the shelf and, and basically trying to low and slow just vaporize, just like you would on a stove in some ways, the ethanol off and see what would happen. Right. And, you know, there was there was some incredible learnings, uh, you know, that is not technically our process now, but it really informed, you know, some of our foundational truths or thoughts about how to manipulate a spirit. Can we do a distillation process that lets us make better spirits? And, you know, what we what we now have is we do a, essentially a thermal extraction. We put essentially the barrel into the still, if you can wrap your mind around that. Um, we literally have this huge tea bag that goes in with a corn-based grain neutral. And we, in about I don't know, a handful of hours, seven hours, take all the flavor out of that charred oak. So we're just speeding up the process, right? Because generally speaking, a barrel, you know, sits in a rick house for at least four years in this crazy Kentucky weather, slowly but surely expands and contracts. We say, you know, we're impatient. We're women. We need to get this done faster. We got stuff to do. So in about seven hours, we do what, what the good Lord does in four years. And then we're able to take off in another process, just the ethyls and just the esters. And that comes off crystal clear. It looks like water. But what's left after we take off and hold on to those flavor molecules is just this incredible concentrate that holds on to all the tannins and the oils from that oak and allows us to, to have our first ingredient in Kentucky 74 or our tequila product, Jalisco 55, you know, be our, our distillate. So that is the crazy way it came to be. And, you know, really it's, it's a, it's a fun slick process. It just allows us to make incredible liquid. That sounds fascinating being able to take all the flavor from the wood and then get rid of the alcohol and be left with that sort of concentrated essence of bourbon without the alcohol but what about this process and what about kentucky 74 makes your product different from all the other non-alcoholic bourbons on the market process alone is probably the biggest differentiator as i said almost everything is water and flavor and we wanted something that had enough heft to it and had enough body to it that really allowed it to walk the walk of a, of a spirit and of a cocktail. And I think ethanol is a magical molecule. It has a, an, obviously a very incredible sensory component, also melds flavors. And, you know, there's, there's all kinds of interesting things that ethanol brings to the table. Certainly when you remove that by design, there are going to be things that you miss, yeah. but the delicate balance of being able to hold on to enough of those flavor molecules to really still have heft to me is the magic and the elegance of what is spiritless products. You know, because of our process, we're allowed to just have liquid that stands head and shoulders above the rest. Across the board though, most non-alcoholic spirits do lack something. You said that there's gonna be something missing and one of the things is the burn. Now, a lot of people enjoy that burn, even if it's a mild burn. So how do you address that at Spiritless? Broadly across the space, there are people that are trying to mimic that burn um, and they're doing it with pepper. And for us, you know, as, as eaters ears and drinkers, we said, this feels like a chicken wing. This doesn't feel like a spirit to me. And I know there's people that are really looking for that and need that. But for us, we said, we want something that, 
is a sipper. We want something that feels complex and, and, and deep and has that heft to it. But if I could pick and choose, our palettes were much more focused on that side of it versus replicating burn. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, in spiritless products, you're going to find some of that. And there's some things that, that certainly you can do to help um, kind of bridge that gap when you're using non-alcoholic spirits and cocktails. You know, for us, we have a product that's called Horses Kick Ginger Syrup. You know, we've actually found that ginger is a great building block to get some of that natural heat that doesn't have that capsaicin heat. So I would highly recommend if you're making an old fashioned or a margarita with a with a spiritless product, pick up some Horses Kick because I think you're going to go, ooh, that's fixed that little hole, that tiny, tiny little hole that was there. You talked about Jalisco 55. That's your second product. Tell me about that. When we founded Spiritless, one of the things that we wanted to do was to be able to walk in a bar and order classics, right? Have an old fashioned, have a margarita. And, you know, that was, that was a big piece of our inspiration. I think the other side of that is, you know, in the non-alcoholic spirit space broadly, there's certainly a lot of a, a lot of different flavors and experiences out there. But in the bourbon and in the tequila world, those are two very, very distinct spirits that are really hard to do well. Um, and, and I think there's some reasons for that. Obviously, when you start playing with gins and you know a variety of other things, you know, uh, even just like some Campari-based spirits, like those are those are more off the shelf if you will, flavors. I mean, juniper, for example, easy extraction. Yep. So we worked really, really hard to get some of that tequila funk, you know, mm -hmm. and to, to build in some of those, those building blocks. And I think we've done, we've done a pretty incredible job for it, but it, it makes a mean margarita. I know we're not quite in margarita season yet, but um, you know, you will really go, oh my gosh, like this feels, this, this feels like a tequila cocktail. Hey, Lauren, do you see a place for alcohol-free spirits like your Kentucky 75 and Jalisco 55 on the bar for everyone? Or is your market strictly for folks who don't partake in alcohol? I think that one of the most shocking statistics that we've now been able to kind of prove and, um, and check in enormous scale is that 75% of the consumers who consume adult non-alcoholic products, like spiritless, like non-alc beer, also consume alcoholic products, hmm. right? So what, what people are now realizing is these are incredible tools in your toolkit, right? It's you're, you're on an antibiotic or you're, you know, watching your calories and you're being good during the week. Um, or, you know, you're a female at a business dinner and you can't have three like the boys can, right? The, the, there are so many reasons that these products can be incredible additions to people's lives that still enjoy, you know, enjoy spirits, enjoy alcohol on occasion. And I think that that's really what we're seeing at a broad scale. You know, they are products for everybody sometimes, but not necessarily everybody all the time. Well, I think you and your partners have created an amazing addition to this category. Lauren Chitwood from Spiritless, thank you for spending some time with me and talking about your amazing products. Oh, listen, thank you. I appreciate you hosting me, Bruce. We're thrilled to be here. My pleasure. So this whole thing of spirit-free spirits is becoming quite a trend, right? It really is. And I love the fact that, as she said that the majority of people who drink spiritless spirits and her products also drink alcohol. That this is not That's just so 
for people who don't want alcohol, but for people to add it to their toolbox of things so they can have, you know, so let's say you really like to have a drink, but you, as she said, you can't have more than one or more than two, but right. you want to keep going with the evening and enjoy the flavor and enjoy the camaraderie. So you have one drink with real bourbon, and then you make your next one or two with spiritless. It's a really great idea, and it's a great idea. Also, if you, um, you know, in New England where we live, we go to a lot of dinner parties, and uh, inevitably, because it's so waspy, inevitably there's cocktail hour before the dinner party, inevitably. Hour or two. Yeah, two hour cocktail hours before the dinner party. And, you know, it would be really great to be able to sip on a spiritless bourbon or tequila because somebody's opening an ice bottle of wine with dinner, and, you know, you think to yourself, oh, my gosh, if I drink uh, tequila now and then I tear into the the wine later, it's going to all add up to a headache tomorrow and a stomach ache tomorrow and, you know, not such good stuff. So it's really a great idea all around to kind of cut down on the overall amount of ethanol you absorb. Our last segment of the podcast, as is traditional, what's making us happy in food this week? And you get to go first. Well, I'm loving my coconut water. It's just something that is like, <laughs> I don't know. I really, but it's interesting. So I've drunk coconut water for a long time, but what I have come to realize. And I'm going to insert and yeah. say, I despise coconut <laughs> I water. I, I just despise it. I know. It makes me just want to run out of the room. So please go on. Well, with I drink it water. because I like it and. Not because, like, the advertising on it and some people say, oh, it's so hydrating. I'm like, okay, you know what else is hydrating? Water. Water Water is hydrating. (laughs) I drink it because I like it, and it's actually not terribly high in sugar, so I thought, until I started looking at all the labels. Some brands, even if they say no sugar added, are sweeter than others. And how do you know how much sugar is in it then? Look at the nutrition info on the label. See how many net carbs are in a cup. Mark and I were recently out at a charming little market in Great Barrington, and they had a big collection of coconut waters, and some had as few as 8 grams of carbs per cup. Some went up to 12, and that's with no added sugar. So I guess it depends on where they're sourcing their coconuts, where they're coming. Mm. Some coconuts have Mm. more sugar in them Mm. than others, what the ripeness of the coconut Mm. was. So you can actually control the sugar content by looking at the label. Right. It, it is a, it is really important if you're interested in controlling your sugar content to always read the labels. It's always important to anything to read the labels. What's making me happy this week in food is Haiga rice. And if you don't know what Haiga rice is, I'm here to tell you that it is something that you should explore in your life. Haiga rice is a great kind of median point between white rice and brown rice, right? It is. Uh, brown rice has the bran around the kernel and the germ under that brand, right? right? The germ is where a lot of the flavor and the oils and some of the good nutrition right. from rice comes from. And the the brand, brand is just pure roughage. Yeah, the brand is fiber, and it's it has dietary reasons to be there, but it is the fibrous content of the brown rice. Higa rice removes the brand, but not the germ. Which is really so, weird. So you get all the flavor of brown rice. You do get more nutrition than white rice. You don't get quite as much fiber as brown no. rice, but you do get more fiber than if you ate plain, regular, milled white rice. Right. And it cooks as fast as white rice, which is really nice. H-A-I-G-A. You can find it at H-Mart. You can find it at Asian supermarkets. Sometimes you can find it at large gourmet supermarkets. You can always find it online. It's a great way to kind of 
ease yourself into eating brown rice, which is, of course, highly nutritious brown rice and very good for you. But if you're a little afraid of the whole brown rice commitment, Hiker Rice cooks like white rice. It tastes a little bit like brown rice. It's a great median point between the two. Okay, that's our podcast for this week. We are so glad you've been along on this journey with us. We are busily writing our next cookbook out later this year. But in the meantime, we're here every week at Cooking with Bruce and Mark finding out about food trends, interviewing food entrepreneurs, people starting food businesses, cookbook authors. You get it all (laughs) at Cooking with Bruce and Mark.